Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Tonight's going to be a little different. We're going to be pausing. We're picking Romans 11 up next week. But before we hop into where I want to go with you guys today, I need a few things. Uh, The first thing I need from you guys is to ask and answer this question to some people around you. I think I have a slide for you guys. Cool. It says, what was something you did as a kid that now as an adult, you look back and realize it was foolish and it had some consequences, all right? So I'm going to give you guys a minute, turn to discuss with some people around you. Ready, set, Go. All right, so today we're going to be jumping actually into uh, one of my very favorite Bible stories that actually talks about foolishness. Now, when you think about it, right, there is a, I think there's something about a good story that really has the capacity to really like draw us in the way that I think just plain information and facts just doesn't have the capacity to do. And so this is one of the reasons that one, I'm excited to jump into one of my favorite stories in scripture, but two, one of the reasons I think that every good pastor has to learn to become a good storyteller, because I I've learned over the years to truly teach something to someone, you almost have to invite their imagination into the journey that has a destination, let's say, in a deep biblical truth or something about God. And this is the reason that for millennia now, for thousands of years, that commentators and theologians have said that Jesus Christ was the, was the best storyteller that there ever was, that he was the master storyteller. And so the stories that Jesus told, for those of us that are new to the whole Jesus thing, welcome, excited you're here, they're called parables. What is a parable? A parable is a fictitious story designed by Jesus to teach truth, or I'll say it this way. It is a heavenly, or it's an earthly story designed to teach heavenly truth. That is what a parable is. Now, what do parables often teach? Something about heaven or hell, eschatology, the end times, what that means. Uh, something about the character of God, um, something about uh, human nature and mankind, something along those lines. And so today we're going to be journeying through one of Jesus's most famous yet equally offensive parables called the parable of the wise and foolish builders. Just so I have an idea of, of, of who I'm talking to and our biblical literacy, raise your hand if you've ever heard this parable before. Okay, cool. You can put your hands down. Um, so one of my favorite stories in scripture, and for those of you guys taking notes, let me kind of title my message for you so that you can have an idea of where we're headed and what we're talking about. The title of my message today is, there are three types of people, but only two types of builders. There are three types of people, but only two types of builders. Those three types of people that exist in this room and out in the ether and the world around us, number one, there's the person who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, i.e. the person that we would call a Christian. Number two, there's the person who thinks they have a relationship with Christ and sadly will die to find out that they didn't. Scripturally, this person's called the lukewarm. And then finally, there is the person who doesn't care to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll call this person the non-Christian, right? So my hope and my prayer is that this message would speak to each type of person, the three types of people that are in this room, the three types of people that exist on the planet. But I'm going to be upfront and I'm going to be honest with you. And that is that this is going to be an incredibly uncomfortable message for the second category of person. The person that thinks they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but will die to find out that they don't. Because Jesus actually has more to say to this group of individuals in Scripture than almost any other type of person, which is kind of crazy to think about. And so as we uh, jump in, I want you to think about really quick um, the house you live in, right? So picture it in your mind, right? 
Now, if I were to ask you to describe your house to me, you'd probably give a few details. You'd probably say, um, I don't know, you'd maybe talk about its design. You would talk about where you live probably first and foremost. I live in Cypress Garden Grove. I live in La Palma, Buena Park. I live in, you know, wherever the Seal Beach, honey, surrounding areas, probably where you would, um, you would first address the idea of your house. Then I said, you'd probably talk about your design, maybe. you maybe talk about the square footage, depending on the size of your house, 1,000 square feet, two, three, 4,000 square feet, whatever, um, and things along those lines. Now, you'd probably tell me about your least or your least favorite thing about your house, and that is if you live in Southern California, if you do or do not have air conditioning, and then you'd probably talk about your favorite place, uh, like mine is probably the refrigerator, right? But here's what you wouldn't do. None of us would talk about your foundation. I can't imagine any one of us coming up to me and saying, all right, so my house has got a 12-inch slab and like beautiful rebar, right? Like, I don't know, you're building a bunker. I don't know what you're doing, but like none of us would talk about the, the type of concrete that was used and things along those lines, right? No one would talk about the foundation, but it's the foundation of your house that makes all of the difference. See, this is not only true of your house, but it's also true of your life. See, in our story today, we'll find that Jesus compares and contrasts two builders, one wise and the opposite of wise, one foolish. And it's important to know that this story that Jesus is about to teach you and I isn't for carpenters and architects and electricians and contractors, because it's for all of us, because building a house is simply an analogy for building a life. The point that Jesus wants you and I to know is this, is that you are a builder. Every single one of you, you are a builder. I am a builder. We are builders. And we are building our lives on some foundation. And the foundation that you choose to build upon is the single most important decision you will ever make in your entire life. With that being said, go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. It'll be up on the Sky Bible. It says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house where? What does it say? It says on the rock. So point number one, or, or a foundational option number one, building your life on the rock. I want you to notice with me, though, that Jesus says hearing is not enough. He's intentional enough to say, actually rather to draw a line in the sand and say, you must act upon his words if you are going to build your life on this solid foundation. So I need you to hear this because point number one is pivotal and important for us in this season of life. Jesus says that you are building your life on his words only as you obey them, not as you hear them. I'm going to say this again because this is so important. Jesus says that you are building your life on his words only as you obey them, not as you hear them. Let me maybe explain this with an analogy or an illustration. Raise your hand if you floss your teeth daily. Okay, put your hands up high. Be proud. You get clean teeth. Keep your hands up. The rest of us look around. These are the liars. No, I'm playing. Just put your hands down. Uh, these are the liars at our church. Just kidding. Right? So the all-knowing Google says this, 30% of people floss their teeth daily. 30%, which seems to be kind of what it was probably here. So most of us, we don't floss our teeth daily, but we know how to floss. In fact, you've probably been to the dentist where they've showed you little charts, and she's like, all right, he or she is like, if you, do, if you floss, this is what your teeth could look like, or this is why you should floss, or whatever it is, right? So here's the idea. You have the knowledge that you need to floss, you have the capacity to floss, and you know where to buy floss. In fact, some of us have even gone to CVS or Rite Aid or Walgreens or Walmart or wherever it was. You bought the crest, white, you know, little floss, whatever it is. You did it for a few weeks, but then eventually you fall out of practice and you stopped flossing. Why? Why did you stop? Truthfully, it's because deep, 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 deep down, you actually didn't believe your teeth were going to rot and fall out if you didn't floss. So you stopped. I'll give you another analogy. My, um, my mom growing up, my parents, both my parents, they smoked cigarettes. And uh, I remember like back in sixth grade, like, you know, uh, raise your hand if you remember what D.A.R.E. was, D-A-R-E. 
like drug, does anyone know what it stands for? Like drug awareness, resistance, education, or something like that. I think that's what it stands for. Um, and like red, red Ribbon Week. And so uh, I remember like the, the cop would come in his cool Hummer or whatever it was and talk about, you know, the type of uh, chemicals that were inside uh, tobacco products and cigarettes. And I thought, oh my gosh, my parents need to know this. You know, like they obviously don't know that that little cigarette is going to cause them cancer, you know? So I went home and was like, mom, good news. I found out that you're probably going to die of cancer because you smoke cigarettes. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, and I was like, did you know that they have like, like car- carcinogens or whatever the word is? Uh, they have cancer-causing uh, chemicals and tar and rat poison and this, that, and the other thing, right? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, what? Like, you know this and you're, act- like you're actively inhaling this? Like, I, I, like, my little sixth grade brain was about to implode. I just couldn't understand why she would continue to do something like this, knowing the grave repercussions of it, right? The knowledge is not manifest in will, and therefore there's no change. I couldn't understand it. And so I, I, I used to take a little Sharpie and I'd write, like, you know, like things on there, like death or whatever. I'd write on her little cigarettes. So every time she had a pull cigarette out, she'd be like smoking Sharpie as well, right? Making it worse. Right, thinking like, uh, did you know? And I had like random facts I'd print out on Google about like uh, about cigarettes and things like that. Right? See, my mom had the knowledge, but there's something that lacked, which was the will to actually change in light of what was revealed to her. Right? The truth is, we all know that our beliefs actually inform our behaviors and our actions. So when we talk about faith tonight, what is faith? Real faith is demonstrated in a faithfulness to God's word and his will that informs our behaviors, actions, and attitudes. That's what real faith is. It's not necessarily what you intellectually believe. It's actually how you live. In the original Greek language, the, uh, the word for faith only had one word for faith that embodied the idea of faithfulness. When you think of faith's objectivity, what its purpose is and why, uh, why Scripture talks about it, faith is never the intellectual assent to believe certain things. Never. We in the English language have separated the word faith and created another word, faithfulness. But that's not it. Faith is that you would be faithful. Faith is that you would be obedient to who God is and what he has revealed. It's so much more than believing certain things. See, I'll say it this way. You need to see that there's a huge difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. There's a difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. In the book of James chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, demons and Satan himself have a correct way of understanding who Jesus, who the Trinity is, who Jesus, the Father, the Son, uh, 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 the Holy Spirit, understands that all better than you and I do. Theologically, they have a, a more orthodox theology probably than you and I do, but they have no faith. Why? Because faith is just as much about believing the right things as living out the right way. And so... Could it be that the reason that so many church-going people's lives look no different than their friends, family, and coworkers and neighbors is because they don't actually believe Jesus? They don't actually believe what Christ says about the blueprint of this world, so they invest in, hold valuable. In other words, the, the, world, the world tethers their value to their valuables. It's one of the things that Christians are told never to do. The world says you are what you can produce, you are what your gifting set is, your valuables. So tether your value ontologically, who you are, to your valuables. And Christ comes and says, that's a terrible way to live. Don't do that. But how many of us, that's what we do with our lives. What college did I go to? Just ask anyone that goes to a junior college. I can say this because I went to one first before I went to Viola. And they will, they will immediately do what I just did to you. 
They'll tell you, well, no, I go to, I go to, you know, I go to, I go to Cyprus or Fullerton or OCC right now because I'm, I'm going to transfer over to Harvard or, uh, you know, somewhere over here. Right? It's, like, it's like we feel less than because, like, we didn't, we didn't decide to spend $250,000 right out the gate, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, right? Like, we have been brought up in a culture that says you are the college that you went to. You are your GPA. You are your academic performance, your athletic performance. And Jesus comes in and says, stop tethering your value to your valuables. That's a terrible way to live. But then we enter into the church and you realize kind of doing exactly the same thing the rest of the world is. We dream. What you daydream, by the way, is what you really worship. Your idle mind reveals to you what you, wor- what you subscribe ultimate worth to. So what, what, what occupies the idle mind? That'll tell you what you really care about. I'll give you an example of this, right? Uh, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, it says, money doesn't buy happiness. Now, you know that. Riley, you know you've heard that. You've heard commercials. Pastors talk about this. Maybe whatever. Maybe your mom told you about this. And then you, there's like this party that goes like, yeah, but like if I'm going to be depressed, I'd rather cry in a Bentley than like a PT Cruiser, right? Like, like, there's, just, like there's just something in you that goes like, yeah, but like, I don't know, like, like real leather sounds better to cry on. Better, right? And see, it's all about the patterns that you choose to follow, right? And so I want to make us aware of the patterns that you choose to follow. In the book of Romans chapter 12, we're going to get to that in a bit. Um, not tonight, in a handful of weeks as we wrap up the book of Romans. It says, uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you could attest and approve God's perfect pleasing and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. What's a pattern? It's something that predates you and I. You are born into a world that has a way of governance. It has a way of saying, esteem these things, put value into these things, bring up your young to search and hold these things dear. And what is right out of the gate and Paul says, look, don't conform. Don't do it. Don't mold. Don't fashion. You are a piece of clay, and you will be molded by the world. Do not let it conform you to the pattern of this world. But one of the things I'm going to ask you later on tonight is, in what ways have you already conformed to the pattern? Believe certain things about you that aren't actually true or holding things that are valuable that God goes, look, like, yeah, cool. If you want to make some money, that's great for your future, maybe, but... Don't do it at the expense of developing a deepening relationship with me. What does scripture says is, what, is it, what does it profit a man to gain the world and yet forfeit his soul? I mean, imagine that you could become Elon Musk and you go to hell. Is it worth it? And with, with the time frame of an eternal perspective of life, no, it's a wasted life. See, the way in which we decide to build our lives is all a direct result and a real lack of faith that leads to real disobedience in the way in which you're building your life. Why? Because what you act on, you build. Or rather, what you act on and build, you build and act on what you believe to be true and what will give you the most fulfilling life. Which is an interesting question that you should ask yourself. What do I believe will give me the most fulfilling life? Because that is what you're building your life after. What do I believe will give me the most joy, purpose, satisfaction, and meaning, and freedom? The answer to that question will determine what you really worship this side of heaven. Go with me to verse 25. It says this. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I want you to notice quickly with me that Jesus did not say if the rain falls and if the flood comes or if the wind blows. He said, and the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew. It is a certainty. The reality is that we will all go through storms in this side of heaven. And so what this means is that obedience to Jesus' words are not protection from the troubles, they're protection in the troubles. Go with me to verse 26 and 27. It says this. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not highlight that do them will be like a highlight foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Foundational option number two, building your life on the sand. So here we meet our second builder. And here Jesus modifies his parable and applies it to those who hear and do not do. The opposite of a wise man is what in his story? A foolish man. Interesting, the Greek uh, word for foolish is moros. It's where we get the English word moron. So let me ask you a question. Why did the foolish man, or rather let's use Jesus' own word, why does the moron build his house on the sand? And the answer is because it is easier. It takes more time and energy to build on the rock, and it costs more. It's easier and it's faster to build on the sand. And for a while, no one may notice. But somewhere along the line, you will pay for building on a weak foundation. See, the same is true when it comes to the foundations of our lives. It's easier to go with the crowd. It takes less time and less energy to maintain a superficial type of faith, where faith is a category of a one hour a week, not an all-encompassing way of life. In the beginning, I told you there are three types of people and only two types of builders. These three types of people only have two options of building their lives on two different types of foundations. The first type of person, I said, was a Christian. They're a doer of God's word, and therefore, they are building their lives on the rock. God has promised them an abundant life, his provision over their life, and finally, eternal life when this life is all over. Now, the second type of person thinks they have a relationship with God, but will die to find out that they don't. In fact, go with me to Matthew 7, verse 21. Let's go up a few verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and did we not mighty works in your name? And, there, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know the endearingness of Lord, Lord? These are church-going people. This is a prophecy from Jesus Christ that there will be people that will die, that sit in, churches, sit in churches like this and sit in seats like you are sitting in right now, hearing a pastor stand on the stage delivering God's word. These people are convinced they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here is God Almighty saying that on their day of death, they will stand before me and they will say, Lord, Lord. In the Greek syntax and structure, when you put two words like that, it creates an inference of personal knowing. Lord, Lord. And he's saying, I never knew you. Cool, you did all these things. You went to a young adult's movie night. <laughs> you went on a missions trip and you took a picture with a bunch of people so that you could feel good about yourself. You did whatever it is. None of it was actually for me. None of it was to truly develop a relationship with me. None of it. Lord, Lord, be not, and he inserts all of these things. Or in the book of Luke chapter 13, there's this interesting encounter where this guy comes up to Jesus and he goes, hey, Lord, will there be many people in heaven? And Jesus says, for many, I tell you, will try to seek and enter, but not many will find it. Elsewhere in the book of Matthew or even Mark, it says, for wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Why? For narrow is the one that leads to life, and few will find it. Third type of person is the person that's a non-Christian. They're an atheist. They're a part of another religion. And they, too, are building their life in the sand because everything other than Jesus Christ is just that. It's, it's sand. And so for the remainder of our time together, I just want to talk to the second and third type of person because Jesus has a different message for each of you, even though you guys are the same type of builder. So let me start with the second type of person in our story. I want you to notice that both builders are, quote, hearers of God's word. What this means is both go to church. Both probably read God's word. Both listen to sermons from pastors. Both 
probably have, if you go to this church, Jesus Changes Everything bracelets. Both went through a discipleship program, rooted a life group, whatever it is, at this church or another church. Both have done things just like that. The difference between the two is not that they have heard God's word, nor that they have made a profession of faith. But the wise builder hears and enacts, and the foolish one hears but does not obey. And what this means is this parable is designed for church-going people. And that's why I said that this conversation is going to be the most uncomfortable for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ or that we're this type of person. So church, let me ask you a question. How many of you are wise by this standard and how many of you are foolish? In other words, how many of you are self-professing Christians hearing and not doing? I'll give you some stats and I'll give you some qualifying questions. How many of us profess faith in Christ but don't ever actually read our Bibles? The only Bible that you ever hear is from a guy from a, on a stage like this. By the way, you're putting way too much weight on your pastor, whoever that person is. If it's me, if it's Doyle, if it's Cody, or it's, you have a home church somewhere else, if you are not in God's word. Did you know that throughout the entire United States, less than 13% of Christians read their Bible daily? How many of us are self-professing Christians but don't serve in our churches, actively participate in some ministry, 16% of Christians serve in their church. This one, next one is shocking. How many self-professing Christians are sexually active outside of marriage? There was an article I was reading on the Christian Post, and it talked about young adults. It said 64% of Christians are, that actively attend evangelical churches, like the ones that we're in right now, come potentially weekly, and yet are sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend says this, young adults between the ages of 18 and 29 who identify themselves as evangelicals are almost as sexually active as their non-Christian peers. 64% inside the church. Outside of the church, it's 68%. There's a 4% difference. That's wild. If that hasn't offended you yet, let's keep going. Um, how many of us are self-professing Christians where are trusting God with our eternity but not with our finances today? In other words, how many of us don't tithe? 5% of Christians tithe. 5%. Now, we want to talk about faith. I'm not here to make friends. Uh, I got enough. <laughs> you, you profess that you trust Jesus Christ with your eternity, but you can't trust him with a few dollars today. Yikes. Here's the question I'm asking you. How much of your life is built on the sand, but you've convinced yourself it's on the rock? I'm going to say it again. How much of your life is built on the sand, but you have convinced yourself it's actually on the rock? Remember, what Jesus says differentiates those who build on the rock is not that they sit in a church and hear a pastor preach, not that they've read the Bible, not that they've gone on a mission trip, not that they've gone through Rooted or a life group or some other discipleship-oriented curriculum. It's that one doesn't do and one lives out what they say they actually believe. So let me ask you another qualifying question. If you profess to follow Christ, how much of your life is that Christ asking of you? If you profess to follow Christ, how much of your life is that Christ asking of you? I'll give you some qualifying questions. Number one, are you ever inconvenienced by your faith? Has it informed you to change your attitude, lifestyle, and habits, and actions, and behaviors, and all of that? Or your friend group, or your occupation, or what you're studying in college, whatever. Number two, does it burden you and convict you to change? And three, does it change your financial freedoms because you give generously? If the answers to these questions are no, it could be because you worship a Jesus that isn't real. He is one that you have fabricated in your own image. Philosophically, we don't have too much time to talk about this. This is called moral therapeutic deism, MTD. 
And um, I'll just give you a few of its highlights. Essentially what it holds to is it infused the American dream with all of the nice and friendly attributes of God. He's like loving, he's kind, he's a provider, he listens to his children, um, all of that type of stuff, but it stripped him of his justice, his glory, um, his, his holiness, and it stripped Christianity to its call of obedience. Here's the problem with all of this. This God doesn't exist. This is not the God of Scripture. See, the way that I have I've realized that this isn't the God of Scripture, because the more and more and more I learn about faith, I realize that I've begun to see some of the things that I originally believed that weren't true about God are the, yeah, the weren't true about God that I held to for the longest time. I'll give you a few ideas. When I was a kid, I told my mom that I would never read this book. She always like, Matt, like, I bought you a Bible. I'm like, I don't care about that. I was like, she's like, I got you a Toby Mac CD. And I was like, I'd rather listen to Eminem, right? Like, I was like, I'm not trying to like listen to worship music. It's not what I'm trying to do. Like, I'm not, you know. And uh, I remember I was like, mom, I'm not even gonna read the Bible. It's a dusty old book. It has no relevance. It was written 2000, in some cases, 3,600 years ago. It has nothing to teach me today. And I also say things like, Mom, Christians don't need to go to church. Like, they don't even need to get involved. I didn't know, like, the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, it talks about those types of things, about what the church's purpose is and what our role as Christians. I thought that the Bible was outdated. I didn't know, like, in 2 Timothy or in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that God's Word is alive and active. That the Bible is an interesting book because it's the only book in human history that every time you open it, its author is present with you. <laughs> I didn't know the Bible has a commandment to be generous with your finances. I go to church with my mom like a few times a year that I'd go, and I remember the offering bucket would come by, and she would throw some money in, and I didn't grow up in a wealthy family by any means, and I remember getting angry, because I knew that an hour or two later, I would ask my mom for some money to go to lunch with my friends, and she would say, I don't have any, and I was like, you just threw it in some trash can somewhere. Like, of course, of course you don't have money to give me now, right? And she would just have this smirk on her face. She would laugh as she knew that one day I'd be standing on a stage giving a sermon exactly like this realizing that one day I was going to be a pastor, that I was going to talk about this type of stuff or whatever it may be. You know, I believe these things not because of the Bible, but because of popular culture. And maybe I modeled my faith after some hypocritical Christians too. Many years ago, I had this exact conversation with someone I was close to, and their response was, look, Matt, I'm a Christian. I'm just not that type of Christian. Then he went on to say, like, I'm not a super Christian. And I kind of giggled. I was like, super Christian. Like, what do you think? Like, you know, the apostles, disciples, and Jesus, like, had capes? Like, what does he think? Like, what does he think super Christian? Like, what does that mean, right? And then he said something I thought was interesting. He said, Matt, look, you take this all too seriously. And I said, look, I love you. And by the way, this isn't a judgmental conversation. I said, do you really believe, though, I'm going to get to heaven? I'm going to look God in his eye on my day of appointment, and God is going to say, look, Matt, you took me too seriously. Or do you think he's going to look into the eyes of some other self-professing Christians and look at them and say, you did not take me seriously enough? What thing's more probable in that? The truth is there's only one kind of Christian because there's only one narrow road, one gate to go through, and one foundation a Christian can build on. <laughs> You're like, wow, this sucks. I shouldn't have came tonight. Um, let me give you, out of all that harshness, let me give you a little bit of grace and some good news. God has the, the, the requirement for moral perfection in his son, Jesus Christ. So what that means for you and I is that if you are a follower of Jesus, what he's requiring of you is no longer moral perfection. It's relational progression. I say that often here because it's important that you understand that because you will fall. You will slip up. You will not be perfect. I'll be the first to tell you I fall, I slip up, I'm not perfect. I've given this analogy before that the Christian faith it reminds me of an infant. My daughter, right, she's a... 16 months now, and uh, she walks really well now, but 
handful of months ago, that wasn't the case. But she was so determined to do it, you know? And so she'd like, I'd be like, Noel, come here. And I'd be like, you know, sitting in the corner, like, Noel, Noel. And she'd like, get up, you know, and then she would like, you know, hit a couch or something, you know, like, and, and she would fall. And I remember she would just lock eyes with me, like super intently, like, like almost psychopathically. I'm like, you're trying to come and like hurt me? Like, what's going on? And, and so she would like just be staring at me, like not blinking, you know, like a fly lands on her eye and she's not blinking. I'm like, what's going on here? I'm going to pray over you. Uh, <laughs> and so she would, she would stand up, right? She'd lock eyes with me. I'd be like in the corner of the room and then she'd like be like, you know, like, and then something shiny would be, and she'd go over there and follow whatever it was. You know, the, the interesting thing about that is I think about that being really similarly to how our relationship with God should probably look. Now, if you're like been a Christian for a long time, you should probably learn to walk better than my 16-month-old daughter, <laughs> right? And if you're walking at the same speed and you've been a Christian for 16 years, that's probably a problem. Not moral perfection, relational progression. So what does Christianity look like? It looks like my daughter wanting nothing more to be in the arms of her father who loves her or her mother who loves her and she's gonna do anything and she's gonna fall, she's gonna slip up, she's gonna scrape her knee and this, that, or the other thing but she's gonna get back up and one step in front of the other, she wants to be close to us. That's what Christianity looks like. Look, you're not gonna be perfect. I'm not gonna be perfect. One step in front of the other, that's what faith is, a demonstration of faithfulness. Here's the question for us tonight. Do you emulate more of Jesus' character, generosity, and humility, love for people who are nothing like him, and forgiveness today more than you did when you first said yes to him? Whenever that was. Does your life look more like Jesus' life today than it did last week, last month, last year, when you joined our church, another church, when you got baptized, when you joined a discipleship program like Rooted or something like that? The answer to this question is yes. You are doing what God has asked you. If the answer to this question is no, you are not doing what God has asked you. You need to change. The Bible says that you need to repent. You cannot continue to walk in disobedience and expect to walk into God's blessings and provisions over your life in the future if you're in disobedience. That would be silly. First question I ask people that say, um, hey, could you marry us? And the very first question I go, are you sexually active? That nah, like, just kicks it off. Like, you know, I just love that. Like, <laughs> Here's why. You ask the pastor to marry you guys. What would make you think that you're going to have a blessable relationship if it's not blessable now? What would make you think God's going to bless your finances if you're not blessable now? That's silly, right? Look, I understand this is like a movie night. Like, this is an intense message, you know? I love you guys too much for you guys to waste your summer. Let's be real, most young adults, I don't know, I'm 30. I don't know if I'm young anymore, but my back's going out. Here's how I realized I was getting old. I started uh, using the seat heater in my car to soothe my back in the morning. <laughs> That's how I realized, like, I'm getting up there in age. Uh, no, but I, I love you guys too much to waste, for you guys to start wasting your summer. The same message I give in high school around this season. It's probably the same one I'm going to give this Wednesday night to a group of high schoolers. Make this a summer of purpose. Learn to build on, on, on the rock. You'll never regret that. It'll be the most important thing that you could ever do for your entire life. Last person I want to talk to before I... Uh, I pray us out and we go over to our movie night, is a third type of person. Just maybe a few things. Number one, if you're an atheist here, you're part of another religion, I'm amped you're here. 99.8% of everything I said is not for you. I want to start fresh with you with a blank slate. I'm just excited you're here. God's got so much for you. Two things I want you to know. Number one, I believe God created you on purpose and for a purpose. And number two, I think that he's better at building a life than you are. I know it, actually. Eight years ago, I remember in... Um, my dad pulled me aside 
in our back room, and he said, hey, uh, you mind if I, if I could talk to you about some things? I, I, I realize I've made some mistakes in my life, and I don't want you to make the same mistakes I'm making. Sure. We sit down in this little back room, the den where I grew up playing with toys or whatever it was, and it's a weird conversation. He uh, just started to talk to me about how depressed he was. He said, you know, I was a police officer, and I was a police officer 25, 26 years. I retired last year, and I feel like I have no more purpose anymore. Now, for those of you guys that know, and I shared my story last week a little bit, um, my dad was an atheist. And he just began to weep, talking about like he just felt like he had no reason to live. I've never seen someone's eyes so hollow before. It was as if his eyes were a window into the depravity of his heart. And then this illustration, it just popped into my mind that I wanted to share with him. I said, Dad, uh, remember when I was a kid, um, I like would try to help you out in the work workshop with things. He's like, yeah, you weren't really that much of a help. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm still not. Um, I said, imagine one day you saw me like going to the garage and you saw me get your work belt on. Let's say I'm three or four or five. And so I, I, I'm, I'm dragging your work belt because I don't have the strength to even lift it. You know, it's got nails and hammers and screwdrivers and a screw gun and all that. And I'm making like a streak in the wood floor, right? And finally I go into that backyard. He's like, remember that big ugly tree we had in the backyard? He's like, yeah. I said, so imagine you see me going out there, and then you know, one by one, you see me grabbing two-by-fours and plywood and all the required materials for something, and you see me just carrying them over and over to this tree. You come out, and you say, son, what are you doing? I'm going, I'm building the tree fort. And you go, can I help? And I go, no, dad, I got it. And you're like, you sure? I'm like, no, I got it. And so from the window, you're watching me spend 30, 40, 50 minutes just him hammering away. I'm smacking my fingers. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even have the strength to put a two-by-four above my head. I said... Dad, I could spend my whole life at that age in that de developmental place and try to build a life how, or build a fort. How well do you think that would, I'd be able to do that? I said, Dad, if I, your son, was to allow you, my father, to help in building this, how much better do you think this fort could be? He said, well, I'm not a carpenter, but I, I think I could build it better than, than you could. And I said, Dad, how much better do you think your life could be if you allowed your heavenly father to help build your life? I shared last week that two weeks from that story that my dad passed away. And I was so thankful that I got to have that conversation with him. But I was reminded that of the lostness that God had saved me from and also the lostness that many people feel today. The truth is that God doesn't just save you from something, sin, but to something, his redemptive plan and purpose for mankind. A few things I want you to know is this. Number one, a life that's in the hands of its creator remains and has the capacity to be a better life than if it remains in the hands of what is created. God is better at building a life than you are. I promise you, he's built billions of them. So tonight, here's your question. You and I are builders, and you are building a life. You're, you're attempting to design a life. Don't do it without the great architect and designer. The question is this. What is the raw material of your life that you need to hand over to God? Where have you built where you need to say, God, I want you to build? I need you to architect my future. I believe that you created me on purpose and you created me for a purpose. Would you begin to reveal that purpose step by step to me? So that's your question. My prayer for you this week is that you would spend some time with God, maybe tonight as you watch this movie, to sit before God and say, God, I give you the raw material of my life. I realize that you are a better builder than I could possibly ever be, and so I give you my life. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for us. We'll get to our movie night. Father, today we thank you that you are good. You're a father and that you are and promise to be a good builder. 
And so, Father, I know in my life and the lives of my friends here tonight that we are building a life and that we are holding on to some material, God, that would be better placed, God, in your hands, not our own. And so, Father, we repent of that and we ask, Lord God, that you'd give us the courage and awareness, Lord God, to hand over the materials of our life and trust you, Father, with it all. Lord God, we love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.